This is In Sickness. I'm Angeliki. I'm a doctoral student in history, and I study the history of disease. I'm Maya, and I work in public health in developing areas. Here's a harsh reminder of how long ago we meant to record this. Here's the introduction I wrote. Am I right in saying that January 2023 was the longest year of our lives? (laughs) (laughs) It's okay, because in my mind... I've already framed this podcast as something that comes out quarterly. So That's what I said this morning. <laughs> see you, see you in the new tax year, guys. I'm always very happy to come back to this space and discuss a new disease. Me too. Welcome to our digital safe space, everybody. All right, for the longtime listeners and Instagram followers, big reveal from Maya. Okay, we gave you a little bit of a poll. We asked you what disease you wanted us to do. The initial winner was Lyme, but only by a small margin. And so today, we're going to make everybody a winner, and we're going to cover dengue. We've had dengue on the brain. (laughs) Dengue on the brain, and now you're going to have dengue in your ear holes. Uh, Let's do this thing. I don't know if any of our listeners know this about me, uh, but I love etymology. In fact, and I don't know if you remember this, I liked it so much that I wanted to major in linguistics when we first got to McGill. Um, But then I took a linguistics class and it turned out to be exclusively about sentence structure. And I was so unhappy that I just dropped that. I remember those word trees you used to do. Used to mark up the whiteboard in the common room with all of the, like, yeah. Exactly. I thought we were going to be about, like, the history of language and etymology and how it transforms across countries. Nope. Nouns and verbs. Hated it. Okay. Uh, Anyway, all of that to say that the origins of the name of this disease are super fascinating. There does seem to be a prevailing theory on the internet about the name of this disease. According to one great article by thinkglobalhealth.org that we will link to elsewhere, There are a few theories that people are toying with, but I have one that is my preferred that we're going to go over. The name dengue might initially come from Swahili, namely the Swahili phrase kadienga pepo, and that means a seizure caused by an evil spirit. Kadienga pepo was then adjusted slightly to be dengue. That move is attributed to Queen Luisa of Spain because the word dengue in Spanish already meant fastidiousness or carefulness, and that was reflective of the way people with dengue had to move. So Queen Luisa of Spain, people believe, caught dengue, and she was talking about how she felt while she had it, that she had to move very fastidiously um, and carefully, and so the two words sort of merged. Now, there is a couple other uh, origin stories. One is that it could be Caribbean pigeon English, um, and then pronouncing the word dandy. Uh, when there were major outbreaks in the Caribbean and New Orleans, it was called dandy fever from the stiffened forms and dread of motion. Don't know that that's like super how I would describe a dandy, <laughs> I'll be honest. So I don't like it quite as much. But I personally just find it really interesting that there's potential for the origin of the name to be in Swahili, even if it was modified, because we don't usually see that, right? It's usually named after like a white dude who discovered the disease or somebody else, usually also a white dude who had the disease. So I think it's interesting that we might attribute it elsewhere. However, dengue was being recorded earliest in China and the Indies. 
So this kind of begs the question why we might be using language that originated in Kiswahili in Africa. The Chinese seem to have called it some version of water poison as far back as the 900s and been aware that it was transmitted by a flying insect, but that's not really insight into the naming convention. So, And it's a nice little teaser for the entirety of the historical section for today. Fabulous. <laughs> one insight, and I boy, did I go down a rabbit hole on this, but one insight into perhaps why we might have a naming convention based in Africa as opposed to um, East Asia is because it seems like there was this doctor named James Christie, and he, British, obviously, might be responsible for bringing the name from Swahili. He was physician to the Sultan of Zanzibar for 10 years, and he was an epidemiologist who studied epidemics and disease. And it was in Zanzibar that he met, get ready for this throwback, Dr. Livingston, we presume. James Christie is said to be the last white man Dr. Livingston saw before he left on his final expedition, which is just like a weird... Thing to say. Can you remind me, um, give me a little recap about Dr. Livingston? He's like the African Columbus. Like he basically was uh, an explorer that jaunted through the jungles of Southern and Western Africa, discovering quote unquote various things. Okay. Anyway, then he got really sick and died. And apparently the last okay. man to see him before he died was our Dr. James Christie. Dr. James Christie also uh, appears to have worked really hard to try and end the slave trade in England, um, writing pieces such as the East African slave trade and measures proposed for its abolition. I also read Dr. James Christie's obituary that I managed to find uh, in the annals, I believe, for the University of Edinburgh, where he went on to teach. Um, so his obituary says, and I quote now, beginning to teach such a subject at his age it need scarcely be said that his success in such a position could not be very brilliant. Ouch. Which is just like so rude. Anyway, all this catty. to say, there was a very in positive and interesting doctor named James Christie who was working in Tanzania and who has written quite a lot about the epidemiology of dengue and disease. And I believe we could perhaps attribute the commonality of that name to him. So dengue, how is it transmitted? If you didn't know, now you do. Dengue is a mosquito-borne disease. Uh, they didn't get quite as creative with the naming conventions for the virus as they did for the disease itself. So the virus is called dengue virus, or D-E-N-V. It's transmitted between humans by mosquitoes, namely the Aedes aegypti mosquito, although sometimes very, very rarely the A.D. albopictus. You will probably hear about them from us again because they also carry chikungunya, yellow fever, and Zika. Also interesting about this mosquito is that uh, it has adapted to breeding in urban areas. So most diseases spread by mosquitoes are quite rural. That is not true of this particular disease. Also, this mosquito is a day biter, which again, most other mosquitoes are most prevalent at dusk or in evening. And this one was like, screw you, screw convention. I like the city and I like the daylight. As with many viruses, with dengue, you build up an immunity. But here is the crazy thing about dengue. And I did not know this. Once you've had it, you get lifelong immunity from it. But 
there are four strains or stereotypes of the virus. So you can be infected four separate times. You'll only be immune to whatever strain you had. The more times you get infected, the worse your symptoms are going to be. So it's like a win, but it's also not really a win. It's really not. It's really mixed. (laughs) You start out with regular old dengue. With reinfections, you get severe dengue. Severe is not so good. Uh, It's not so good for you. So, okay. As with literally every other illness we've ever talked about, it starts out, you feel kind of like you got the flu. Uh, It's four to 10 days after you've been bitten. It can cause a really high fever. But then you start getting other different signs that sort of point more towards dengue. That's like muscle, bone, or joint pain, especially hence that like stiffness element. Pain behind the eyes, very swollen glands, vomiting, and a rash. That's typical dengue. Mm -hmm. Severe dengue, though, here's another hint. It's also called dengue hemorrhagic fever or dengue shock syndrome, just to give you sort of like a sense of what's to come. Severe dengue is actually life-threatening, and it's the one that's more likely to occur if you have had dengue before. Essentially, what happens is your blood vessels become damaged and leaky, and you don't have as much clotting agent in your blood. So this leads not only to shock, but internal bleeding, organ failure, and sometimes death. The worst thing, though, is that because you don't have clotting agent in your blood anymore, you just start bleeding everywhere. Trigger warning for people who don't like blood. This is not going to be great. (laughs) It's a bit late. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, When you have severe dengue, you are likely to experience blood in your urine and fecal matter, under your skin because your veins have collapsed in your now persistent vomiting and most appalling of all out of your gums nose and in your eyeballs so this can all come on really suddenly you'll have like a normal dengue case your fever will start to go down and then just like boom blood it's really hard to predict unless you are doing something like regularly measuring platelet levels so it can just feel really abrupt and out of nowhere please keep all of these symptoms in mind for the later portion of our podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Fun fact, when I lived in Mozambique, the head security officer (laughs) in our office was just like so wildly gung-ho about all diseases. He regularly made fun of me for not wanting to get typhoid, not wanting to get malaria. He bragged about how many times he'd had malaria. And most memorably, he informed me that he was the first case of severe dengue in the whole country and told me at great length how much he had bled out of his different face holes. Then he asked me what I was so worried about. Exactly that thing. Yes, it, it was that. It was that thing. Yeah. Do we have any options? Treatments? Vaccines? You know? Uh, short answer, not really. And that's something else to keep in mind for later. So there are rapid tests for diagnosing dengue that are pretty reliable, But there isn't a cure or a treatment for it. You just want to catch it early, hydrate a bunch. Most hospitals and medical professionals will just tell you to take acetaminophen or paracetamol and get a lot of good rest. Nothing gives me more confidence in my medical professional than just get loads of rest and take a painkiller as needed. But like, that's when you know you are well and truly screwed. Like it could be fine, but it could also be like, terrible good thing to keep in mind do not take nsaids if you are worried about having dengue because those are anti-inflammatories and they can thin your blood 
And if you're worried about hemorrhaging, that is not something you want. That's also true for people who are taking various heart medications and so on. Just something to keep in mind. Now, there is a live attenuated vaccine for dengue. It first came out in 2015. And I am not going to tell you more about it because my entire section is going to be about the vaccine. So stay tuned for that. Dengue is most common in tropical and subtropical areas. The most cases are in Southeast Asia, Pacific Islands, Latin America, and Africa. It can be transmitted by an infected traveler because the carrier mosquito that I mentioned earlier is in fact on all continents. In conclusion, I was pretty shocked about how many cases of dengue there are and how much it has increased. One recent estimate predicts 4 billion people are living in areas with a risk of dengue and that there are 390 million dengue virus infections a year. So I will temper that by saying the vast majority of those are non-fatal, just very uncomfortable. Of course, once you've been infected, you are now at greater risk of severe dengue, which is more fatal. There is a risk of infection in 129 countries of the world, although 70% of the actual cases are in Asia. Anyway, continues to be on the rise. Let's let's get into it. Tell me about the history. So the history, something I found really interesting when I was doing my research is actually the whole naming thing. Like you've given me a couple of names that we're referring to dengue as. But there are even more. Um, so I I want to go through it because it's really complicated and confusing. And I promise I have a point. Going through my list. So, so we've got a bunch of mentions of things that are or could be dengue. So in 1658, we have uh, something they're calling it severe arthralgia, which I'm guessing is like muscle and joint pain. Observed by someone called Melchisedec de Thévenot, which is like... wow. <laughs> just just so extra anyway french person french traveler who publishes an account of his travels in 1672 who's mentioning something that sounds like dengue um in 1771 we found a quebranta huesos which is a term used by physicians in puerto rico from 1771 in 1780 we've got breakbone fever which is actually a really common name for dengue in the 18th century And that comes up, especially with regards to the 1780 epidemic in Philadelphia. Can I just say Um, that's so Philly? It's so Philly to be like, ah, break bone. (laughs) And it's funny because when I was reading about this epidemic in Philadelphia, it's part of like a series of epidemics in Philadelphia that happened during the Revolutionary War. Smallpox and yellow fever and and dengue and like you just don't want if you, if we ever have the chance to time travel, just do not go to Philadelphia in 1780. So in the same year, there's uh, another epidemic of what they're calling <laughs> knuckle courts. Truly cracked me up. <laughs> Which is which is Dutch. It roughly translates as knuckle fever. And that happens in Batavia, which is present-day Jakarta, Indonesia, otherwise known as the Dutch East Indies at the time, another place you don't want to be. We've got a bit of a debate over uh, who published the first medical text slash clinical description of dengue fever. So to do with these two epidemics, one is from Benjamin Rush, who later becomes famous as... Um, they're called man midwives. So he is right now. <laughs> I know. He's. <laughs> so right now, 
<laughs> in this context, he is um, trying to get a handle on the epidemic of dengue fever in Philadelphia in 1780. But later on in life, he is responsible for the margin- marginalization of, of female healthcare workers hey. in reproductive care. So yay, Benjamin Rush. And his text is called Account of the Bilious Remitting Fever, and that's published in 1789 about the epidemic of breakbone fever in Philadelphia. And I have a quote from the Fielding H. Garrison lecture of 2016, and it says, The pains that accompanied this fever were exquisitely severe in the head, back, and limbs. From these circumstances, the disease was sometimes believed to be a rheumatism, but its more general name among all classes of people was the breakbone fever. Rush noted that in some cases, the disease produced hemorrhagic symptoms, leading occasionally to the death of the patient. Many of the patients who recovered from the disease suffered from weakness and, quote, a dejection of spirits, and I wrote relatable, (laughs) for an extended period of time. Because of this, one of his female patients suggested that the disease should be called, quote, break heart instead of, quote, break bone fever. Isn't that good? Wow. Yeah. Also, I intend to call every every discomfort in my life exquisitely severe from now on. Exquisitely severe. (laughs) So poignant. Back to knuckle courts. The second contender for first medical text slash clinical description of dengue fever is by David Bylum about the epidemic of knuckle courts in the Dutch East Indies, (laughs) published in 1780. And there's some debate as to whether this is chikungunya fever or dengue fever and the differences therein. Part of the reason this section is mostly about naming is that I got really confused about how everybody seemed to be using all of these different terms interchangeably. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Like sometimes it's very important that they are distinct and different and definitely not the same disease and sometimes all of them are the same. Anyway, more on that in a second. Okay, so these are the two main contenders, but... When I was in the Cambridge World History of Disease, they also say that the Scotsman Patrick McDowell left behind an account of something that could be dengue from 1699. Apparently, there was a a group of Scots who were trying to make their own colony in the Isthmus of of Panama, and it was called Project Darien. And an epidemic swept through the colonists, and um, McDowell's description of his illness was very, very extensive and detailed, and it might be dengue, it might not be dengue. We don't know, but it exists. So back to my, my mentions of dengue. In 1801, we have dengue being used in a Spanish text to refer to an unidentified condition, mm. which, I, which is, like, super helpful to us. And then in 1823-24... You've got the Kadinga Pepo uh, epidemic in East Africa, which then spreads in a big way to India. And once again, we have a mention of severe arthralgia. And obviously, Maya's already covered the, Swah- the Swahili homonym for the evil spirit caused cramp, which, like, I can see how cramps might feel they, like they come from an evil spirit. And then the name dengue is introduced in English during the West Indies epidemic of 1827 hmm. and 1828, and that's the first time it's used in English. In 1861, 1872, Kadinga Pepo in Zanzibar, we talked about Christy earlier, and it was called Kadinga Pepo because of the severe joint pain that was being experienced by people during that, during that epidemic. 
And then in 1872, uh, the first mention of a pandemic of dengue in India and China. And there's loads of debate over what the disease actually is, why it seems to combine fever and rheumatism and observations of unusual cardiovascular problems, central nervous system syndrome, coma, etc. Um, so Patrick Manson based his chapter on dengue in Manson's Tropical Diseases on his observations from the pandemic in, in southern China that spreads from India. And that is hugely influential. And then in 1880, there's a medical dictionary by G. Mahay, which lists uh, Kidinga Pepo as one of about 50 synonyms of dengue. Well, which again, are they are they synonyms? <laughs> are they different diseases? Ah, ah, we will discuss. And then in 1881, when Christie gets back to Scotland, he reviews all the previous available records of dengue and says, knuckle quartz is incompatible with breakbone fever. Like there's some discussion about like, which ones correspond to one another? Which one is different? What are the symptoms that are that are matching up? And then August Hirsch, who's a medical geographer based in Berlin, publishes a monograph, again in 1881, about dengue, where he tries to chronologically and geographically organize all of the outbreaks he's compiled uh, in, in recent history with symptoms which could correspond to dengue, but might have different names. <laughs> and it's clear from his writing that he understood dengue as a composite of many diseases. So for him, mm -hmm. it's many different things. And I guess for Christie as well, like they're, they're in agreement about this. And here I'll explain why I'm going through the whole list because I know it seems a little bit pointless, but these are not just naming conventions. This isn't just about naming the disease. This is a record of contemporary observers and scientists who are trying to work out what this disease is and how best to treat it. Mm -hmm. And it gets even more complicated because some modern scholars argue that Many of these occurrences that I've mentioned have been diagnosed, so may or may not be dengue. What I found really interesting as well is that every source I pulled actually had a section on retrospective diagnosis, which we love. And it seems that in the case of dengue, there's enough similarity between dengue, chikungunya, yellow fever, etc., etc., that it's actually sometimes difficult to tell what's actually happening which is probably abundantly clear from everything I've just said. <laughs> Some of the variation in symptom profiles and evidence of relapses could also be due to reinfection with different strains of dengue, which even more so complicates the historical aspect of this. Even worse, with earlier sources, often the people writing are not categorizing fevers and don't really care whether something is dengue or chikungunya because for them, it's all fevers. And that is like how it exists in their own in their own like medical repertoire. So the question I'm going to pose to retrospective diagnose or to not retrospective mm. diagnose. And my answer is it actually depends on what you're trying to do. And this kind of gets into ways of doing disease history and kind of like methodological problems. So I would say if you're someone who's interested in the history of disease and you want to understand the epidemiology of dengue fever specifically or its ecology or map it in any significant way i would say yeah you go for it you retrospective diagnose you get clinical and you take your modern symptom profile and you try to apply it to your sources great that's one way to do things however if you're more interested in the experience of these diseases in the past 
or other fevers or the effect of disease on a community slash culture slash belief system work with contemporary understandings of, for example, dengue and see where that gets you. Both are valid. I would also say there's an interesting other side to that of like, just like a modern understanding of epidemiology and viruses. Like it's so interesting that say chikungunya and dengue were so confused with one one another, especially given that they are carried by the same mosquito. I would guess there is some element of like cross infection or like similarity or something. So like, it's actually remarkable that they were equating the two so much because they're probably like biologically very similar. Depending on what time period we're talking about, like what would be the point of identifying dengue fever specifically? Like what are the treatment options for dengue fever versus, for example, yellow fever? Like if all of your strategies are going to be the same, I mean, it's not necessarily like paracetamol and rest, but... (laughs) Arsenic. Arsenic. (laughs) Like... Yeah, okay, let's take arsenic as a as an example. If you're whipping up a cocktail of cocaine and arsenic to give your to give all of your uh, tropical fever patients, then like does it really matter that much which tropical fever it is? <laughs> so in the 20th century, the link is made between the transmission of dengue fever and other fevers and mosquitoes. And Maya actually brought this to my attention someone called Bancroft using human volunteers (laughs) proved the link between Aedes aegypti and dengue fever. And so I did a lot more research about this just to figure out what's going on with the human experiments. So here we go. I'm going to give you a juicy quote to start out with. Okay. The seminal experiments conducted by Major Walter Reed and the Yellow Fever Commission in 1900 and work on dengue in Syria by Graham inspired Bancroft to test the hypothesis in 1906 that the dengue virus was transmitted by mosquitoes to humans. In experiments conducted in Brisbane, locally abundant Aedes aegypti were allowed to feed on patients diagnosed with dengue. After a period of at least 10 days, These mosquitoes were then allowed to bite volunteers who, in some instances, developed disease typical of dengue. Unfortunately, Brisbane was experiencing a large dengue (laughs) epidemic at the time, so it was difficult to confirm whether these patients acquired their infection during the experiments or whether infection was naturally contracted. So, Cleland et al. in 1916 and 1918 shipped them to Sydney. to infect human volunteers there. So this is 10 years later, these people decide we're going to do it again because it was inconclusive. So what we really need to do is to take these infected mosquitoes with dengue and bring them to a place that has no dengue currently to make sure that whoever we infect, a new batch of volunteers, (laughs) is experimentally infected and not naturally infected, which seems to me like the opposite of the thing you want to be doing if you're trying to advance health in general. So, all right, stay with me here. Results are later confirmed by a team in the Philippines in the 1920s. Um, So this article about the experiments that I first found is from 2018 and doesn't talk at all about the ethics of the experiments or question the recruitment of volunteers to be infected with dengue. They actually say, another quote for you, 
the pioneering work conducted in Australia in the first decades of the 20th century paved the way for over 100 years of research on Aedes aegypti and formulation of strategies for its control, which seems pretty triumphant. They're confirming transmission of mosquitoes of this disease in the 1920s, whereas like most of China was like, guys, <laughs> mosquitoes in like 900. It's just... Yes. We're just... Yeah. Okay. Look, the local, vol- the local knowledge is not valid, obviously. Um, so I, I was still wondering about the human volunteers because naturally on this podcast, we have cultivated a suspicious attitude towards <laughs> white people who do research, um, particularly if they have access to native people, generally speaking. So yeah, I, I continued to look for later but still old <laughs> publications about human experiments just to see if there was any more information about the volunteer recruitment, and I found one from 1946, Ooh. and now know some really gross details about how and when the mosquitoes were fed, which, <laughs> yeah. Do you want an example? <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is gross, so if you if you were bothered by the last thing, you should probably skip ahead. By like a minute and a bit. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, quoting again, feeding commenced on 1st March when the mosquitoes were approximately 10 days old since emergence or collection in the field. And this is in Africa. As only a limited number of volunteers were available for biting. (laughs) And I wrote, I'll bet. (laughs) Only the first four species were used. So what happens here is that you have a group of researchers who are starting off in uh, an epidemic of dengue in Africa, and they get, air quotes, volunteers <laughs> who are currently ill with dengue, and they get mosquitoes to feed on them. Okay. And then they collect the mosquitoes, it's four different types of mosquitoes, and they ship them off to Australia. Great. Okay, so we're doing the same thing again. So the men, the Australian men came to the laboratory so that the mosquitoes were quite undisturbed. We would not want to disturb them. Except for inserting the arm of the volunteer into the cage each day and the daily collection of dead mosquitoes. These were kept for checking and the entire contents of the, ch- of the cages were checked at the end of the experiment to verify the identity of all mosquitoes used on the volunteers. The men were allocated in groups of three for each species and used in rotation all mosquitoes being given an opportunity to feed every day. Okay, so I kept reading, and it comes out that the volunteers are soldiers between the ages of 18 and 34. And they're selected from a convalescent depot where they've been admitted to hospital for something else, like an operation or an injury or a concussion or a sprained ankle, which, good to know they weren't just like, collecting people off the street or using young children who were most at risk. But surely it's not okay to, to like recruit someone for a dengue fever human experiment if they're already like vulnerable, like, ah, you're concussed. Oh Why God. don't you enroll in our trial? No, I don't. Like, I guess it's better than it's, some options. It's better than what I thought. Not the Okay, so this brings but me it's... to a really interesting thing. And I was thinking about this earlier this week, which is that we've come across so many examples like this across Africa of like medical experimentation. 
And we've been able to talk in detail about things like the Tuskegee Project, other spaces where we've seen like evidence, data of medical experimentation on people who did like were uninformed, were coerced into it, whatever. But I look at stuff like this and some of the examples that we know happened and are honestly still happening in like Southern Africa and there's no writing about it. Like there's no literature. And I know, I mean, I'm sorry, these white British men doing experiments published everything. Like I know there has to be data on this somewhere. Why is it so hard to find? I think in order to get the answers to some of these questions, you'd really have to go into like whatever archives there are with the papers of the person doing the experiment. I agree, and I will say, this is an aside, but I'm very interested in doing that. We've talked so many times about that, that mistrust of medical professionals and like concerns over experimentation and rumor around that and how that's based in a history of exactly what we're talking about here. And yet, like we know it happened, but there is so little evidence that people are talking about. Mm-hmm. And I just find that very troubling. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And and I think that's a really like valuable field of inquiry and something that's being done more and more um, by young scholars, mm. mostly. The thing I found the most shocking was reading these super recent articles, like within the last five years, talking about like, oh, how wonderful was it that they did all this work? Like, this is like a key milestone in the development of, of like prevention and, and disease control. Let's maybe think about it a different way. Like, would you ever get ethics approval to conduct this kind of research now? No way. Well, then shouldn't that be our standard? Yes. Arguably, our standard should be even higher. (laughs) Absolutely. But I just like, I don't understand how you can be uh, researching and writing right now and not be thinking about it even in terms of your own protocols. You know, like it's anyway. Yeah. No, I, I, I found it really, really unsettling, actually. Yeah, that's very weird. OK, so in the late 1940s, dengue was cultivated in the lab and I'll leave the rest to you. Okie dokie. Wow. Crazy. I actually think that my section is very much in the same vein, but in the modern day. And I will also say that I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that some of this stuff was confirmed in Philippines because I'm going to talk about the modern day Philippines, um, and I'm going to talk about the dengue vaccine. Just to recap, like if you are infected with dengue, chances are that your second infection with another strain is going to become severe dengue, which can be fatal. So this story goes some way towards explaining a bit more how that is influenced by the dengue vaccine. So I mentioned briefly that in 2015, the first dengue vaccine was approved. And that vaccine is called Dengavaxia, which <laughs> I hate. <laughs> I love that. Amerithrax. Yes, Dengavaxia. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's made by Sanofi Pester. They worked on this vaccine for 20 years. They spent $2 billion on it. Like they went in on this vaccine. They went through the whole regulatory process. They published research on its efficacy. And then they were like, okay, we've made it through round three. It is ready to go in 2015. Despite the fact that they had done clinical trials and they had published those findings and they had received regulatory approval and gotten World Health Organization recommendations that all children in high-risk areas should get this vaccine, 
there were some major issues with the data and there were plenty of people external to those organizations that identified it and were calling it out and were being ignored. The WHO does now say, or rather point out, that their approval was a conditional recommendation and that they did see there were gaps in the data and issues. But they pointed that out in July of 2016. So it had already been approved for like a year before they were like, actually, maybe everybody shouldn't get it. So, okay, so we're setting ourselves up in 2015. Everything's approved. Everybody's like, oh my gosh, uh, finally a vaccine for dengue. That's so incredible. Um, They published all these data sets about the tests that they ran. And a lot of people were like, um, there's some serious issues with these data sets. Here's what these people were seeing that said to them that the risks are too high. Basically, doctors were looking at the vaccine data and they were seeing that for some children, not only did the vaccine not work in that it did not stop them from getting dengue, but in fact, what happened is that if children had already had dengue, it placed them at higher risk for severe dengue or plasma leakage (gasps) syndrome. So basically, because it was a live attenuated vaccine, if a child had never had dengue before and got vaccinated, the next time they got bitten, not only were they still at risk for dengue, they were now at risk for severe dengue instead of just basically starting from zero. So is it like not quite like being infected with one of the strains of dengue? It it is like that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So for a lot of kids, so they would ba- they were basically getting like a little bit of the four strains, and they were getting inoculated against their first round of dengue. But then instead of not getting dengue ever again, they were at increased risk of getting severe dengue the next time they were infected. Instead of not getting okay. dengue ever again. Ah. Yeah. Lovely. Okay. The opposite of the thing. Yes. And so it wasn't 100% of them, but there was a risk of that. And so there were a lot of doctors and medical professionals, epidemiologists coming out and being like, um, this seems not good. Do not recommend it to all children. But it was still being recommended. That's where we're at in 2015. Meanwhile, in the Philippines in 2015, dengue is becoming a bit more of a threat. Cases rose 300% from the previous year. They were experiencing around 800 deaths a year and hundreds of thousands of symptomatic cases. Again, though, dengue is typically not fatal. So it's not as big of a public health issue as you might imagine. It's not even in the top 10 causes of death. Is it great? No, but it's not like killing everybody. So December of 2015... Shortly after that initial research from Sophie Pester was published, uh, the president of the Philippines and others in political office negotiated the purchase of three million doses of Dengavaxia. So this had not been implemented anywhere. It had just gone through clinical trials. It was not rolled out anywhere else yet. But they wanted to be the very first to start in on an ambitious campaign to vaccinate one million school children in the Philippines. The thing is, this is already confusing. Like, the risk of dengue is not that crazy. They paid $57.5 million for just those doses, which is 3 billion pesos. The Philippines is, like, not that well off. This was going to affect less than 1% of the population. That's how many people were going to get vaccinated. But costing more than every other vaccination campaign they were running. So, like, the whole thing is super confusing. 
nobody really knows why they launched into this with such fervor. Typically, also, when you start a new vaccine campaign, there is a safety process where you run a small campaign locally to see if that changes anything, right? Like, oh, we've never used this vaccine in the Philippines before. Let's do it in a small community, make sure it's safe for everybody, and then we'll roll it out nationally. They just did, they just did not do that. Uh, and calls for like the safety of this vaccine, concerns about the data were just like so quiet and so pushed down. And for some reason, the Filipino government was like so sure about this idea that at the beginning of 2016, they just moved straight to rollout. They were like, let's do this thing. It's been on the market for like two months. Let's go. What? I, I'm sorry. This sounds like a train wreck. Yes. This sounds for so like, many reasons. This sounds like the soccer dad who's obsessed with like, Getting Blu-ray even though Blu-ray doesn't work. (laughs) That's so exactly right. Yes. So 2016, we're rolling it out. Are you seeing the issue with the dates here? Yes. So WHO is like, oh my gosh, yes. Get all those kids vaccinated. Okay. Within days, things are starting to go wrong. Um, But like people are not really open to hearing about potential issues, which does not uh, surprise me, honestly. Like, Especially given the things we've seen over the last three years with our current trust issues around vaccines, you can understand why people might not want to listen to a minority of voices being like, hey guys, I think there are some safety issues with this vaccine. So vaccination campaign goes forwards and throughout its life cycle, 830,000 kids were given the full round of Dengavaxia. Um, This kept going until November 2017. So after the WHO had been like, "Mm, maybe we should think about this some more. And in November of 2017, Sanofi Pasteur was like, hold up, wait, there might be some safety issues. Two years after they approved it. Yes. So nearly a million children had been vaccinated. And at that point, Sanofi was like, if you've never had dengue, maybe don't get this shot. Finally, in November 2017, the Department of Health stopped the vaccine campaign. In the year following that, the Department of Health records show that 19 of the kids who had received the shot died from dengue-related issues. All of the data shows that never having had dengue but getting the shot put you at higher risk of severe dengue, but there was no way to tell how many of the kids they gave the vaccine to were actually at risk because the Department of Health and Sanofi chose not to collect any data on previous infections as they were giving the vaccine. Come on, guys. Even the team in 1946 knew to collect that data. What What do you mean? It is crazy. Like, all of us have gotten this COVID vaccine. Have you ever had to go get that vaccine and not been asked, have you had an infection recently or ever? So... Cool. Yeah. And after you've gotten the vaccine, because it is a live attenuated vaccine, it is too late to test and tell because now you have strands of the virus and the antibodies in your system. So you can't know if it's from a previous infection or from the vaccine itself. As you can imagine, all this evidence caused like a huge blow up. Filipinos felt like they were being used as guinea pigs because they were the first people to experience this outside of clinical trials cannot blame them. Members of the Department of Health were fired or even indicted on criminal charges. There was some probing into that procurement process. Like, why was this pushed so hard? It does not make sense. I could not find more info on that. I really do think it's weird. The Filipino government is like pretty notoriously corrupt. Like, there's a lot going on 
there so i i would love to hear any conspiracy theories that uh people might have about this like send them along i love a good conspiracy if anyone knows more has like a personal relation to this and has more insights like hit us up because there was not a ton published and i would be very interested to know maybe it's just too recent like maybe in another three four years and definitely i i can imagine that this this kind of story if it is a corruption thing they would not want that coming out when people are still having to get boosters for covid i would agree in the end of all this after it was shut down they estimate that about 10 percent of the kids vaccinated are now at greater risk of contracting severe dengue and that's that's not a huge number it is more than should ever have been put at risk obviously but i would argue that there are even more extreme side effects from this like mainly in the crazy public health implications. I want to talk about vaccine hesitancy. Bingo, yes. We have obviously talked about vaccine hesitancy a bit before and how it's rooted in a combination of things like historical trauma, distrust of Western medicine, the spread of misinformation, and so on. In this instance, it's clearly based in this like really traumatic recent event. In 2015, 90% of Filipinos supported vaccination. In 2018, 21% of Filipinos supported vaccination. So uh, I think we all know what happened shortly after 2018. Uh, The pandemic hit. So you have an all-time low in trust of vaccines with, frankly, pretty good reason. And then as they started rolling out COVID vaccines, it was pushed really hard by the government. Like the Filipino government in recent years has been very, very restrictive generally. But they were just facing these high levels of mistrust. So in 2021, six out of 10 Filipinos said they were hesitant to get vaccinated. That is very high. And in 2021, in terms of resilience to COVID, in basically a measure of how many people were getting vaccinated, they placed 50th out of 53. Okay, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, like this obviously had like a very clear reflection through time. Today... Almost 95% of the country does have two doses of the COVID vaccine, and that is because of how rigorous and how many restrictions the government put in place. In one instance, President Duarte did say he would jail people who didn't get it, which is sort of a go-to for him. We're not going to get into that as much because there's a lot to get into with Duarte. But So this, this overall vaccination rate is much lower in rural areas, and it's highest in Manila, which is the urban center. But only like 25% of the population has a booster, and it's just like a direct outcome from this like very reasonable, frankly, mistrust of like a fast rollout of an untested vaccine. And as per usual, that most affects people who have intersecting inequities, like people who are living very rural, high poverty, um, disability, et cetera. Yeah, obviously there's like a lot wrapped up in that little package. It's just so crazy. It's not that long ago. I personally had never heard of that, which is weird because like we were fully adults when this was happening, like working and thinking about this space. But it just seems like maybe that was something that was not talked about very much because a lot of people in a lot of important positions failed pretty dramatically. Dengue is still on the rise in the Philippines with 2023 looking like it's going to be a pretty bad year for it. Obviously, we're not going to deal with it through vaccines. May I suggest vector control for this specific thing? It does kind of feel like the people of the Philippines were tested like guinea pigs. Like There were so many warnings and people were saying those warnings. And you can understand 
why people might feel that they were experimented on, why they had to prove that it wasn't going to work, and why that might lead to vaccine hesitancy, mistrust of government, and mistrust of Mm -hmm. um, those companies. Would like to emphasize, not true of every vaccine, you should still get vaccinated uh, for pretty much everything. But like, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I don't know. That's just like one of those very clear consequences of something that is clearly born of corruption. There is no like other explanation, right? Incompetence and like there were enough enough dissenting voices at the. Is this even like the peer review process? Yeah, as soon as they published their data, like if you looked at the data, people were like, "Okay, so that's not great." And I think it's also just like indicative of how easy it is to lose the trust of a community if you try to pull this crap just a crazy story i really like just the process the fact of how it was done like all this stuff is so insane it's so insane that you would Mm -hmm. think that this would i don't know it doesn't make sense it does not like maybe it was well-intentioned but it's very hard to see who did that cost-benefit analysis i mean i think as with the Blu-ray comparison, I think it was meant to be some sort of PR win. Like, I would not at all be surprised if this mm. was, like, a bid to be like, look at us being so proactive. We're awesome. We're protecting our kids against dengue. Yeah. And it just, like, backfired spectacularly. Yeah. Well, dengue's been really, really interesting. Because, like, I was not expecting to enjoy this research so much, which sounds no. really bad. This is, like, very much outside of my area of expertise or so I thought, but actually it's all about retrospective diagnosis and it's all about that like realm of uncertainty that I love to exist in where like we're not sure what the disease is, but <laughs> that's kind of what makes it cool and interesting fun. and fun to, fun to get into and loads of resonances for us between like now and then. I agree. Yeah. We laughed. We loved. We lived. Not a good day to try ad-libbing. No. <laughs> anyway, here comes the ad-lib section of our episode. Hey, do you have any wins you want to share with the team? I have many wins. I have moved to the new house. Woohoo! And it's great. And I love my new neighborhood and my local pub. And I am actually getting so much work done in my home office. I am starting a new chapter um, about hospitals in Quebec in the 18th century. Yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. It's, it's coming along. Yay. Yay me. Yay hospitals. Yeah, tell me your hoorays. I, oh, technically I am published. Woo, she's published. It's just a little protocol, so I feel like I'm not as excited about it as I could be, but still. (laughs) I just had a cupcake for breakfast, so that's feeling pretty good. I would actually say that my hooray is that I like very much pushed the boundaries of my like interpersonal comfort over the last 10 days. I like went out and did a lot of stuff. Secondary future hooray is that one day, eventually, when we have enough brain space, we're going to be planning a mini break holiday in the coming months. We're going to see each other in real life, possibly somewhere warm. Who's to say? I look forward to it. Yeah. Okay. Okay, wait, hold on. Let's end this episode and then let's talk about this for a moment. Okay. Okay. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. This has been lovely. See you next quarter. See you next quarter, everyone. Okay, bye. Bye. I love you. I love you. Thank you for listening to In Sickness. Researched and hosted by Angelique and Maya. Intro track and logo by Adrian Morningstar. Sound editing by Maya. <laughs>